All right, so in our press series, we have been and will continue to be looking at what God says about suffering. Now, let's get context really quick. I've promised you over the years that God willing, because of all of the, the lows that we've been going through as a church, all the sufferings physically, emotionally, relationally, that this church and the Christians in it needed to gain a theology for suffering. And over the weeks, I've been presented to you this idea. Technically, atheists, agnostics, and secular people like to say that suffering and evil are the greatest threats to Christianity. That suffering and evil actually discredits the existence of God. But I presented to you a different idea. That actually suffering is the greatest threat to secularism, not to Christianity. It challenges the idea that life gets progressively better and better and better. As human beings, we should have already learned this through modernity. Because there's this great push in America about the ingenuity of man, human achievement, and then boom, civil war happened. And then as the country is reconstructing itself, and modernity sets in again, and progressivism, and things get better and better and better than the Great War. And then we didn't even learn after that, a couple decades after the Great War. Progress, industrialization, automization, and then World War II happened. But we still think after all of this time, even we've survived in 2020 thereafter, that human achievement through us getting better and progress that we're going to be able to escape suffering. And time and time again, God's like, nope, because the way that you get to suffering is not through your achievement, but through mine. Suffering is the greatest threat to secularism. And suffering has challenged the lives of those who are present here at Heritage. And as I presented to you the very first Sunday that we began this, is that I believe that our past and our current sufferings, this is what they do. They diminish our desire to live on mission for God and with God on this earth. There is a reason why that your heart beats and your brain sends impulses beyond being a spouse or being a parent or being an income earner or fulfilling whatever your favorite hobbies are. You have a deeper reason for why you exist. And suffering challenges that. Because suffering challenges us and tempts us to move inward, to become more selfish, self-absorbed, self-focused, self-centered. Suffering is like a fire heritage. It burns away everything that you believe is non-essential in your life. If you really want to learn what you believe is essential or non-essential in your current life, go through some suffering. Because as soon as the fires rage in your life, you'll start cutting things out of your life that you believe are non-essential. When you are suffering, here's the thing. You can't keep up the false pretenses anymore. Whatever you just do just to appease somebody else, a boss, a spouse, a family member, God, you can't keep up when you're suffering because pain screams at you. You can only hear that voice. Now, being your pastor for almost nine years this April, you have helped me to see this. You have taught me this. Because many people, ironically, have left this church during a time of suffering. That's actually what happens. Whatever message they may communicate to you, underneath it all, it's suffering that has caused them to leave. Whatever they may say, they're hurting. They're struggling through something. And pain is intended by our enemy to isolate you. Because... Our enemy wants to be like Jesus, who is the lion from the tribe of Judah, right? Who seeks and prowls about like a roaring lion, like we read about today. And they may say something like, I believe it is God's will for me to leave church. But underneath a statement like that is actually pain and suffering that's motivating it. So through our pressed series, we're going to see that that is actually not the pattern. And it's not the encouragement that the Bible offers to us about what we should do and what we should say and how we should act and how we should think in our sufferings. And then we began thinking about the great Oswald Chambers image that you cannot drink grapes, right? Grapes must be pressed. Grapes must be squeezed. And so that welches, since we're a Southern Baptist, right? But for more liturgical, creedal denominations, you know, it's a wine. God will use suffering to squeeze you, to press you, because he wants to grow you, 
through what you suffer. But it is right here that people struggle. Because theoretically, like we just sang sovereign moments ago, right? All my hopes, all my dreams are in your hands, right? Everything, it's all yours, right? We sing that and we say that, we think that theoretically. But functionally, many times there's no difference between those who attend church and someone who is secular. Someone who believes that they're really, if there is a God or there isn't a God, doesn't matter to them. That's closer to agnosticism. Yeah, there could be a God, may not be a God, but I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to live it as best as I can at the time that I have. So for two weeks, we're going to look at Job's sufferings and the evil that was attended against Job through Satan. Philosophically, we call this a theodicy. A theodicy seeks to answer the question of, okay, if there's a being, some sort of mojo, some spirit, some force, or some God behind it all, why is there evil, and why is there suffering? Why does he even allow it to exist, and why does he allow it to continue? And it's sometimes in human history, civil war, great war, World War II, COVID. Why does it seem like he allows it just to crescendo and climax at certain times? That's called a theodicy. The world's philosophies, like forget about Christianity for a moment, secularism, atheism, agnosticism, think about religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, they all have answers to respond to this idea called theodicy. But as Christians, we believe that only Christianity has a sufficient answer to this. We alone have the viable answer for why suffering exists. Because Christianity alone has this proposition that there is a God, he is good, he is creator, there is suffering, and there is evil. We don't diminish it. But there's also a God who, though he was God, became man, and he took on evil, and he took on suffering, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. Christianity alone has this. Greek religion, what we call mythology today, does not. Islam does not. Judaism, the roots of the Christian faith, does not. Hinduism, Buddhism, or any other secular philosophy does not have this. Christianity and Christianity alone does. So traditionally, philosophically, we think about evil in three categories. There is moral evil, there is natural evil, and then underneath or above it all is what we call cosmic evil. By moral evil, you need to think about the evil and suffering that's caused by another person. That hurt that that relationship, that person you love so much, that hurt they keep doing over and over again to you, that's moral evil. Robbing the bank, murdering somebody, that's moral evil. Natural evil, you think of those natural disasters. And then cosmic evil, that is the spiritual powers behind both. Through Job, in these two weeks, you're going to see these types of evil, three categories, over and over again, just assailing wave after wave in Job's life. And I pray that over and above it all, you will see that God is still king. He is still in control. Evil must be held accountable, and he will hold it accountable because he is in control of all things. And like I said in week one, our foundation for a theology of suffering, that God is in control of all things, even suffering, so he can govern all things towards his glory and for your good. Make no mistake, heritage, the existence of evil and suffering is not an argument against God. The existence of evil and suffering necessitates that there is a God, and we'll talk about that today. Because if there is no God, then there is no such thing as a moral absolute. Honestly, there is no such thing as a moral standard for any culture whether in Central Africa or in Branchton today. If there is no God, there is no standard by which you can say or believe anything about life. If there are no moral standards, no moral absolutes, you and I have no foundation to say, that's a great thing you just did, or that was a terrible thing that you just did. You should not have said that, or you should say more of that. If there is no standard, there's no basis for why we can say anything like that. So it doesn't matter if I steal from you. 
or if you steal from me. It doesn't matter if you slap me on the cheek or if I slap you on the cheek. It just is. Do you get that? If there's no standard, who are you to say and who are I to say that that's good or that's wrong? What happens is that, therefore, you're putting yourself up to be your God, which deep down is what you really want to do. You want to set yourself up to be God over God. At the end of the day, as we'll see through Job today and next week, and through the suffering of Jesus, there is real evil, and there is real suffering in this life. And evil proves the existence of God and the need of moral standards, moral absolutes, and for us to experience God as that standard, as the sovereign above all things. And we're going to begin to see this today in Job. Okay, so let's get started. Our proposition, what I hope you see through Job today is this, is that Jesus is the ultimate Job. He is the ultimate reason why Job suffered and why you suffer. Jesus is why. Jesus is the ultimate Job who demonstrates God's providence and God's presence by taking on what you suffer, by what I suffer. So over the next two weeks, we're going to add this theology of suffering. First week was God is sovereign over all things, even suffering, so he can govern all things according to his glory and our good in Jesus. Today we're going to see that evil and suffering are real. I am not here to diminish your hurts and your griefs, your sorrows, the travails of your soul. We are not here. Like some philosophies say, just get over it. Just put those big pants on, right? That's some American philosophy. I'm not here to diminish your pain. And neither is the Bible. And neither is Christianity. But what I am here to tell you is that human achievement, just trying harder, doing some different things, is not going to account and resolve the evil and the suffering that you experience. It will continue to experience. Think about it this way. Human achievement fails to account for evil and suffering. Because right when you think you have it all, you have that marriage, you've gotten the kids, you've gotten the job, you've gotten the car, you've gotten the house, you got your hobbies, got everything lined up. You've been there, right? Next thing you know, you get that dreaded call from the doctor right? You have something terminally ill. And in that moment, having the great spouse, the great kids, the great house, the great car, the great job can't do anything for you. Or a natural disaster come and just wipe out everything that you just achieved for yourself. That's life, right? Deep down, every person wants to answer, why does this happen? And how is it that this happens to me? And this is what you need to add to your theology of suffering. Our reason for suffering is bound up in two men. Adam, and what we call the second Adam, or the new Adam, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. The reason why we suffer is because of Adam, because of Jesus, and it's resolved ultimately in Jesus. Suffering proves the existence of God. And Jesus is the greatest proof of this. And I believe, which I pray the Holy Spirit convinces you of today, that the reason why we still read the book of Job today is to point to Jesus, who is the only one who can take on your suffering and take on the evils that you experience and that you cause in other people's lives. And that he will see you through it to the end. Jesus can do this because he's not a demigod, and he's not just a great moral teacher. He's able to do this because he is fully God. By Jesus, we experience God's presence and God's promises in the midst of our suffering. And you have to remember week two of our press series, that you can experience as a Christian joy and suffering together. Remember that? Simultaneously, like think of childbirth naturally. And then you can experience joy and suffering kind of side by side. Sorrow lasts for the night. Joy comes in the morning. All right, let's get started with our first point. In the first chunk of our reading in Job, what I want you to see is that it is God who providentially allows Satan to work evil into Job's life. That is the thing that we have to struggle through right now and talk about. God is sovereign over all things, even evil, even suffering. And at this point as we begin, you have to remember that Satan is a created being. 
Jesus, God the Father, Holy Spirit, they are uncreated. So nothing created God. No one created God. If anyone created God, that thing is God. Do you get that? He is uncreated. He created all things, including Satan, which means there was a time when Satan was not. And there was never a time when God was not. You okay with that? That means Satan is not ultimate. He is created. He has a creator, just like you and just like me. And in fact, the three of us share the same creator. And because we are all created beings, Satan, you and me, we are all under accountability of our king and creator. Let's see this right now in verses 6 and 7. The writer tells us that there is a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And among this Ben Elohim in Hebrew, Satan also came among them. And God, Yahweh, goes to Satan and says, from where do you come? And Satan has to answer his king. And he says, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. This is a mind-blowing scene. There's only several scenes in the Bible where you get an inner glimpse, get a look behind the curtain of the throne room of God. Revelation also does this. Daniel also does this. Job does it right here. And we see that Satan has to present himself before God. Now, this is before the cross. There's a little bit more that goes in there. But generally, Satan must present himself to God. Satan is held accountable for his movements. Once again, God's omnipresent, right? He knows all things. He is everywhere, present, omniscient, omnipresent. Very similar to Adam and Eve. Like, are you hiding? Did you really eat? God knows where Satan is, just like he knows where Adam and Eve were. But God is holding Satan accountable for his movements. And Satan clearly tells him, Yahweh, I'm roaming the earth. Now, the apostle Peter tells us that Satan roams the earth because he is a lion. And he is seeking someone to devour. Have you ever watched those Nat Geo shows on the, the African wilderness? And how these lions operate? They isolate, right? They don't take on the herd. They take the, the pickings, the weak, those who are off like they, they fed a little bit too long. They're probably like me in this herd, right? Y'all have moved on. I'm still feasting. And the lion's like, I'm not going after the herd. I'm going after this one. Satan does that. He is the ultimate created lion who is seeking some one singular to devour because that's what lions do. Like God, Satan has a mission too. Jesus tells us very clearly in the Gospel of John that Satan's mission is threefold. Steal, kill, and destroy. God is sovereign, so he still accomplishes his purposes over Satan's mission to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Take a look at verse 8. So God says this to Satan, and this is a struggle. All right, you're not going to be alone in this. I struggle with this verse too. God asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. We have to look at this verse squarely. So whether it's in your Bibles right now or on the screen, you have to look at it. For some reason, God asked Job. We know he's looking for someone to devour. And God goes, have you seen? Have you looked at Job? And Satan's like, oh, I have. I would love to get my paws on him. Let's take a look at what Satan says in verses 9 through 11. He says, well, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand and touch all that he has. Result, he will surely curse you to your face. 
Let's think back to week two of our press series and think about Naomi again. Remember Naomi experiencing famine? Her husband died. Her two sons died. Naomi, in her bitterness, she felt and told the women of Bethlehem, God is a witness against me. Do you remember that? But in reality, we learn God's not a witness against her. God is her advocate. God is for her, as Paul would say in Romans 8. Who can be against her? But we know the answer on who can be against Naomi, who can be against Job, and you, and me. And the answer is Satan. Satan is the accuser. Satan is the false witness, not God. Jesus is the parakletos, the advocate. Satan is behind evil and suffering. But we see that Satan must be held accountable by God for what he does. But even more, we have to struggle through this, is that God is sovereign over it. Satan's accusations about Job to God is that Job is only faithful because of the prosperity that you have given to him. I am pretty sure if I gave you a million dollars right now, your loyalty to me would increase, right? I'll say, hey, can you come over tomorrow morning and help me with something? You'd be there, right? Because the prosperity I've put into your life is jading, perhaps, your motivation for coming to help me. That's what Satan is saying. He's a great accuser. His idea is this. God, remove prosperity, replace it with adversity, Job will become an atheist. That's Satan's central argument. And look what God does. Verse 12. God says, Behold, all that he has, all that's in his hands, is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. And then Satan departs from the presence of the Lord, and he skulks about in Job's life like a lion. What we see here is that God is giving Satan permission to bring adversity into Job's life. This must be added to your theology of suffering. We call this, theologically, God's permissive will. In the willing of God, there's his electing will and his permissive will. This is an example of his permissive will. It is an essential term for us as we suffer. Think back to a couple weeks ago to Joseph's suffering. Remember, we revisited the life of Joseph, son of Jacob. Think about what Joseph said, Genesis 50, 20, and what he said about his suffering, the evil that people meant against him. Joseph said something like this to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Remember that? Same thing needs to be applied here. Joseph's sufferings was a part of God's permissive will. Naomi's sufferings were a part of God's permissive will. And likewise, Job's suffering is a part of God's permissive will. That the agents, Joseph's brothers, famine, or Satan, means something for evil, but God means that same thing for good. Let's look at verses 13 through 16 now. So let's see what the lion does. It says, on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And then while he was still speaking, another messenger, he says, the fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants, consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Back to back, bad news. Actually, doesn't stop there. I'm just going to stop there for a moment. So a ethnic group, a people group called the Sabaeans, raided Job's livestock, his cattle, and his donkeys. I can't imagine killing a donkey. They're so cute. Remember the donkey we had for fall festival? I just can't imagine. Job's livestock have been plundered or slaughtered. Job's wealth is diminished. It's not like Palestine had coined currency right then and there. Possessions and wealth were determined by the livestock that you had and the sons that you had as well, linked to prosperity. Job's wealth is diminished. Job's workers are murdered. 
That is moral evil. Do you see that? That's a classic example of moral evil, what it looks like. Then we see message number two, that a fire comes down. If you notice, it says, from heaven, and it burns up Job's sheep and servants. That is an example of natural evil. But whether it's moral or natural, we now know before this that Satan's hand is behind it. That is theodicy. Why would some being, some force, some juju, some spirit, some God, who supposedly created all things, who's supposedly good, why would he allow this to happen to Job? The thing is, you too have experienced moral evil. You too have experienced natural evil. Why would God, who is supposedly your creator, who is supposedly a good, good father, I mean, we sing that in our liturgy, right? How could he allow this to happen to you? This is why people do not believe in God, right here. This is why people turn to secularism, atheism, and Gnosticism. And the crazy thing is, after these two messengers, Job's suffering is not done. It's going to carry over to next Sunday. we got two more rounds of this, and let's take a look at it. Verses 17 through 19. While the second messenger is still speaking, another came. Here's what he said. Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels, took them, slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That's three. And then four, while he's still speaking, another messenger. And this one hurts even deeper. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. A great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. That is the hurt. That hurts more than losing oxen and cows and donkeys and sheep. Chaldeans raided Job this time. They took the camels, murdered the servants guarding them, and it doesn't stop there. Moral evil followed by natural evil again. While Job's sons, though they're supposed to be out securing and shepherding the flocks for their father, that's what boys do in traditional Middle Eastern cultures. They work on the land for their dads because that's going to be their wealth in the future. They're not doing that. They're too busy drinking wine. That's a sermon for another time. As men, they're neglecting their duties and what God wants them to do for their own hobbies. That's another sermon for another time. But while they're partying together, this great wind slams against the house, and a natural disaster happens. The roof collapses on them. All sons, all daughters, dead in an instant. Job has now lost his wealth, and now Job has lost his children. Job is left destitute. And it looks like Satan has accomplished his mission. Steal, check, kill, check. But will this destroy Job? That's a theodicy. How can God do this to Job? Why does God allow evil and suffering to exist and at times to thrive? Christianity alone has the most compelling answer for this. Don't get me wrong. Secularism has an answer to it as well. Without God, a secular person will say something like this. This is just one explanation. They'll say, okay, this is unfortunate, Job, but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Long before that was a Kelly Clarkson pop culture song, this is a moral philosophy from Frederick Nietzsche, the great writer of God is dead. After World War II, he's like, conclusion, there is no God. God is dead. It comes from him, not from, it's just taking philosophy and put into pop culture for you in the Americana. If God or some force outside our suffering does not exist, what basis does Nietzsche, Clarkson, or a normal secular person have to say, what doesn't kill you can make you stronger? What basis do we have to even say something like this? Have you ever thought about that? 
Statements like this, what doesn't kill you can make you stronger, necessitates that there's a power outside of your story. There's a power outside of your hurt that provides strength to you. Do you get that? I wish someone would have told Nietzsche that. And his hurts and sorrows that motivated him to coin that. There has to be a power out there for something that doesn't kill you to make you stronger. And that is why suffering and evil is the greatest threat, not to Christianity, but to a secular way of life. There is meaning, there is purpose, and there is, thank God, resolution to the evils and sufferings that we experience and we cause in each other's lives. And the thing is, heritage, for those of you who are still in church, but you're still living like you're secular, a secular life does not have the fullest answer to this. And I beg you to give up on it. And you're in church, that's square one, that's great. But secularism cannot answer this for you. There is something much deeper going on in human beings when they're murdered, when they're hurt, natural disasters go on, just saying, it's okay, bro. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and you move on with your life. That's what secularism does. See, Satan has a mission. He hates God. He hates all that God has created, and he wants to kill and destroy it. But God is sovereign, even over Satan. So right now I want to stop and pause, and I want to share a quote with you from Dr. Tim Keller. Such a compelling quote. Here's what he says. And he's so honest about this. I love it. There is no fully satisfying theodicy that completely shows why God is justified in allowing evil. It's very honest for a Christian to say that. But nevertheless, the Christian doctrine of resurrection and renewal of the world, that's eschatology, comes the closest to any real explanation that we have. Amen? Woo! The secular, the atheist, the agnostic cannot provide for you any real or reasonable explanation for the suffering and evil in your life and in this world. They cannot. Because if there's no absolute truth, if there is no God above it all, there's no such thing as evil. Do you get it? There's no such thing as suffering. As soon as you say, that thing you said right there is good, and what you just said right there is bad, you set yourself up to be God. You are the standard. And so what does earth have but billions of little demigods running around thinking that they are the one true God? To do this means you put yourself or someone else in the position of moral authority. But as Christians, we believe that there is no pastor, there is no synod or council, local, state, national, global government that is the absolute standard of moral truth. This is, and this alone. That's why Luther coined the term sola scriptura. It's been a while since I quoted the Reformation to you, right? But maybe it'll come back time and time again. In addition, the world's religions like Hinduism and Buddhism cannot provide a real explanation for evil and suffering. America, since the 1950s maybe, has loved things coming from the East. They have adopted Near Eastern religion into American life. That's why you talk about karma. Karma is a Hindu concept. You realize that, right? That, that your past actions and your past life as an ant, like, not like an ant like, you know, a sister of somebody who has a kid, but an ant like the creature. You did something as an ant, and you're reaping the reper repercussions of it now as a person. That's karma. Hinduism and Buddhism cannot provide a real explanation for evil and suffering because they believe that evil and suffering are an illusion. You're stuck on this wheel, and through certain things that you do from their core tense of religion, you can actually come off of this wheel of suffering. That's insufficient. Judaism and Islam cannot provide a real explanation for evil and suffering as well. Because all of these systems, philosophy, secularism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, and Islam, all lack one thing, Jesus, the God-man, God who became man, who took on evil and suffering on the cross. Every single one of those worldviews and philosophies lacks a theology 
of the cross. And it is to Jesus that we turn to now, so you and I can see and rejoice in that he is the ultimate Job. Jesus is the one in whom Job finds, and I pray that you would find, and you pray for me that I keep finding to be the ultimate Job in our suffering. Let's get to our application now. What I want you to consider as we begin to close is this. So you are to respond to suffering by reaffirming God's purpose. And we reaffirm this through the ultimate Job, which is Jesus himself. Remember during Advent, and we always love Advent season, right? It's always joy and gladness, right, during Advent. We focus on Psalm 113, that God is king who will redeem the lowly, right, and lift up the needy and to give the barren woman joy. Like that was the crux of Advent this past year in Heritage. But by Psalm 113, we learn that the psalmists believe that our purpose in life is hallelujah. It's praise. Seven times they use praise in Psalm 113. I want you to keep this in mind because we see Job fulfill God's purpose in his life even during suffering, and especially during suffering. And then contrast that with how we respond to suffering today. We get a fingernail, um, hangnail, and we leave church over it. That was hyperbole, by the way. But how else can someone praise God during suffering unless they believe that God is 100% sovereign 100% of the time? especially in suffering. We'll see this in Job right now. Verse 20. Four waves of devastating news that has left him destitute. This is his response. Job arose, which implies he heard the news and got on the ground. He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and then fell back to the ground in worship. You see that? We're walking through those four things right now. The news of losing wealth, and family brought Job to the ground. Job is face down on the ground because of his suffering. And I know that you have been there, Heritage, because many of you have allowed me in to become face down with you on the ground in your hurts and the evils and sufferings in your life. When news comes of losing someone that you love, this is what happens. You fall to the ground. When I received news that my mom had died, I remember it's the first weekend of the school year. And those of you who do not have a teacher in your life, you know this is one of the toughest weeks for a teacher. All I wanted to do was to take my wife away for one night, one night, to get away from the demands of church, the demands of school and kids, the craziness of the week, and just celebrate getting through one of the hardest weeks of the year. So we're out at dinner. And throughout the day, I become concerned. And I was talking, I still remember this. Like, we're driving to Orlando. I'm telling Tisa, like, my mom hasn't responded to me in days. Like, usually it's like seconds. Sometimes it's nanoseconds. Like, she's just waiting for me to text her. And this blow-up emojis on me. Like, she's not responding. I don't know what's going on. And then my sister reaches out to me and texts me at dinner. She's like, have you heard from mom? I'm like, I haven't. It's been like a week. I don't know what's going on. She immediately gets off the phone. She calls the police department. Please come by. Courtesy check. My mom's home. See what's going on. And the whole time I remember, you know how much I love food, right? You know how much I love food. Food didn't taste like anything. Cardboard. I don't know, styrofoam. Lost the taste of food. we got to our hotel room, I don't even remember now. I don't even think Tisa had even gotten out of the shower yet. We got the news. Joseph, come home. Mom is dead. And I fell to the ground. Fell to the ground. That's Job right now. I don't know how many sons and daughters Job had. Wave after wave of hurt. He can't get himself off the ground. That's a sign of grieving. Grief is so heavy, it brings us to the floor. 
But then we see that Job tore his robes. That is a sound of a sign of outrage. Do you remember when the Sanhedrin was trying to coax Jesus to be honest? Who are you really? And the high priest says, I command you, I adjure you by God most high, tell us who you are. And Jesus says, I am the son of God. And the high priest tears his robes. It's a sign of outrage in this culture. Job tears his robes. This news is truly outrageous. And then he shaves his head. And in traditional Middle Eastern cultures, that is a sign of mourning. In Western cultures, we wear black. And there are seasons where we wear black. Not so much here anymore. Maybe for a couple of hours for a memorial service. But in this culture, they shave their heads. So what did Job do in his grief and his outrage and his mourning? Job got up and he went right back to the ground. Do you see that? And what did he do? Suffering brought him to the ground the first time. But why does he go to the ground the second time? He goes down to worship. Oh, Heritage, we have been together for almost nine years. And I don't think that some of you know that worship is more than just doing this or doing this during our worship service. This is worship. This is worship. What you do in your hurts and sorrows and griefs is worship. And we see Job worshiping God. Suffering was the reason that brought Job down the first time. Worship and God himself is what brought Job down the second time. Satan believed that Job would curse God if he experienced adversity. But adversity didn't bring Job to atheism. Make no mistake. Adversity brought Job to his knees to praise God. And here's what this means. This means that you can praise God when you are grieving, when you are outraged. And when you are mourning, you want to know what I did five days after my mom passed away? I had my guitar, and I served you in worship. Many of you were upset with me that day because I did that. And you expressed it. I'm thankful for the concern that I should not have been leading worship the days after my mom passed away. But could you imagine doing that to Job in this spot? telling him not to get on his knees and worship his God and his sorrows. We need this for our theology of suffering. And I talked about with Tisa, should I not? Should, I, should we figure something out? Make shift the service? I'm like, no, because you must see an example of what it looks like to suffer. Not stay home because you have a migraine or you, you're, you got a hangnail, right? That you're here, joy or suffering, prosperity or adversity, you're here. That's the theology of suffering. Pastors are meant to be an accessible representation of what the Christian life is like. Satan wanted to use Job's adversity to diminish God, but instead, Job's adversity elevates God. When Job suffers, he brings his anger, his outrage, his grieving, and his mourning to his God. But the question you have to reconcile today is this. How do you respond to evil and suffering when it comes your way? And then, in terms of justice, how do you respond when you realize you've caused evil and suffering in someone's life? Do you become an atheist when you experience adversity? Because I believe that people can attend church, but they are still functional secularists or functional atheists, even though they attend church. Is that you? I want you to see now what Job says as he worships God. Verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Barak Shem Yavah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job does one. He's affirming the temporary nature of this life. This many cows, this many cows, this many children, this many children. That doesn't create what life is like. That's not where meaning and significance is found. Life, this life, is temporary. Job knows there's more to this life than the temporary years that we spend on earth amassing our 
heard and amassing our family. Job came naked into the world, and Job knows he cannot take any of those things that God has given to him when he dies. Not children, not cows, not donkeys, not sheep, and not camels. God gave it to Job because God is the giver who can also be the taker. This means the ultimate cause of what has transpired in Job 1 isn't the Sabaeans, it isn't the Chaldeans, it isn't fire, and it isn't wind. And ultimately, it isn't Satan himself. It's our God. It's our Abba. It's our Daddy. God is the ultimate cause of all things. And the theodicy means you've got to reconcile that, Christian. You have to reconcile this. All that we have and all that we love is by God's providence. Even for the atheist, all that they have, all that they love is by God's providence. All things come from his fatherly hands. Remember the Heidelberg Catechism that we read? Week one? But look at the conclusion that Job, Job draws. Job reaffirms his theology. Job simply says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is worshiping God at the lowest point of his life. And that is exactly, precisely what God's purpose and mission is in you and in me. Whether in prosperity or adversity, we are to see God for who he is, trust in God and what he says, and let the confidence of who he is and what he says direct how we live our lives. That's God's mission in us. Know who he is, learn his promises, and live our lives according to those two things. Let's see the conclusion of it all in Job 22, verse 22. The writer says, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Satan believed that as adversity replaced prosperity, Job would take up atheism. That is normally how suffering works. That is Satan's strategy. That's what he means to do. Suffering is a fire that burns off all the excess in your life. And our enemy cannot conceive that anybody would want to love and follow God just for who he is and not by what he gives. Job did not sin and he did not curse or blame God. But the question I want you to reconcile in your soul right now is this. What does your suffering show you about yourself? When suffering comes your way, do you blame God, curse God, become that functional atheist? What we have to answer before we take off today is this. Why didn't Job curse God? I think a secular person and an atheist would say, Job, you are well within your right to give up on God. He's given up on you. Stop doing this religion game. Look what he's done to you, this God that you love. Right? The culture would say, give up the ghost, Job. So we have to ask, why did not Job curse God? And I think this is the reason. It's because Job's hope was not in God as giver, but in God as redeemer. Job's hope was not found in his children or his possessions. That's what Americans put their hope in. Job's hope was in God as redeemer and restorer. And once again, I want to turn to Dr. Keller. I want you to, to, to grapple with this quote. He says, only Christianity, of all the world's major religions, teaches that God came to earth in Jesus Christ and then became subject to suffering and death himself. Amen? This is the backbone of why we are here, right? If Jesus did not do this, why are we in this hot, humid room right now, right? This is why the gospel is needed in suffering. Here's the reality. Muhammad did not die for his people. That is not a central tenet of Islam. Nor did Allah. Allah is out there. He is transcendent. He is holy. He doesn't come to earth. We're too bad. Buddha did not suffer and die. He believes that suffering is an illusion. Free yourself from it. And Moses did not die for his people. 
This makes Christianity the most unique idea on this planet. Christianity teaches that God and Jesus came to earth to take our sins and take our sufferings. The evil that was intended for you and for me was experienced by Jesus instead. He did not just take the sting out of sin. He took the sting out of what suffering would do to you. Jesus became our death. And I believe that Job knew and trusted God as his redeemer and his restorer. Long before Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Why do I believe this? I want you to take a look at Job 19, verses 25 and 26. Job says, as for me, it's another pop culture song in Christian subculture, right? My Redeemer lives, right? I know that my Redeemer lives. And here's the eschatology. At the last, at the eschaton, on the final day, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, my flesh shall see God. Thousands of years before Jesus says, I'm resurrection in life. After the suffering Job experienced in chapter 1 and what we'll get to in chapter 2, Job says this to his pitiful, terrible friends. Job's hope while suffering was in a future redeemer for a future resurrection and a future reckoning. Do you see that? Job knows that one day his redeemer will come to earth. That's advent. That's literally what the Latin word advent means. Appearing, coming from heaven down to earth. Job believes this. Job knows that God will take on flesh and redeem him by one day passing judgment on all evil and suffering. And Job's hope is in future resurrection. Job knows that his body will fail. His skin will be destroyed. But the contrast is as his body is destroyed, his body will still see God one day. That is resurrection. Job believes God is his redeemer who will come to earth and make all things right. That is what keeps Job going during suffering, and that is what you need to add today to your theology of suffering. You need a belief that God will take on flesh to take on sins and sorrows, and only Christianity can provide this. And if you're on the fence, you attend church, but you live a secular, functional, atheist lifestyle, that is not going to provide you what you need to get through the sufferings that are going to come your way in the future. Only Christianity can, because only Christianity has God who became man to take on the evil that you are going to experience and to rectify the evil that you cause in other people's lives. That's social justice. And as Christians, we believe God exclusively did this in Jesus. Amen? Not in Moses, not in your pastor in Jesus, in Jesus alone. God's work of resurrection and renewal is wrapped up in Jesus, God's Son, taking on flesh to take on our sins and our sufferings. So what I believe is going on in Job 19 is that Job is expressing his faith in the future work of God. And that is another thing we will get to in Pressed series. How do you fight the sufferings of today? You look forward to the future promises of God that as he provided in the past, he will provide what's going on in the future. Job lost his children, his wealth, and eventually we'll see next week his health. But Jesus was rejected by everything that he created. Despite this, Jesus took on the sins and sorrows of his people on the cross. Now, we're going to close with this. In my undergraduate years at USF, I had to read a sociologist by the name of Peter Burgess. And he wrote this book called The Sacred Canopy. It was a look at Christianity through the lens of a sociologist. Freud tried to do this with his psychology. It was terrible. I had to study that too. Marx tried to do that with, through economics. It's terrible. Berger tried to do it through sociology. And I wanted to read a quote from Dr. Berger on this. He says, Only the sacrifice of an innocent God 
could justify the endless and universal torture of innocence. But this is a phrase I want us to hit you with. Only the most abject suffering by God could assuage man's agony. That's alliterative. Whew, it preaches, it feels good to say. And it's so true. He has it right. He's preaching the gospel right here, Heritage. Jesus is God who took on suffering. Jesus is the only way that evil and suffering make sense. If there is not a God who took on flesh to bear that evil and suffering himself. So where does this leave you? For our theology of suffering, you must reconcile the truth that God is behind all things, even your sufferings. No longer should we say, in the prosperous years, God's behind that, and then when things are hard, Satan's doing it. That's minorly true, but not the point. As Christians, we should no longer say something like that. We are not dualists, as we spoke about in week one. We're also going to discuss this in future weeks, but for right now, I just want to drop it. This means that there are innumerable and complex reasons why God allows things to happen. The simplistic responses of Job's friends for why he suffers, you're a sinner, does not do justice to the complexity of God's will in Job's life, Jesus' life, or in our lives. And we need to stop saying it to people. We need to stop being Job's friends to our friends. For now you must see from Job that God allows evil and suffering into our lives for deeper reasons than you're doing something wrong. America has profited off of that idea. You can go on Instagram right now, find a coach who will tell you what you're doing wrong in marriage, family, finances, get some quick fixes, and move on. It's too narrow, it's too simplistic, and it doesn't address why things are really happening in your life. The Hindu concept of karma cannot fully explain and satisfy the reason for why you are suffering, because Job did nothing wrong, yet he suffered. Why did Job suffer? Because for some reason, God intended, which we will wrestle with in coming weeks, God intended for Job's suffering to point us to Jesus. Just like we'll get to the Gospel of John eventually, there was a man that was born blind, remember that? And the religious elite want to know, why was this man born blind? His family are sinners. His parents are sinners. He's a sinner. And Jesus is like, nope, it was for me. We're going to get through that theodicy in coming weeks. More than Job, Jesus did nothing wrong, yet he suffered worse than you, than me, than Job. So secular philosophy and religion cannot produce a satisfying worldview for suffering to help you live well today. Only Christianity can. Only Christianity can do this because Christianity alone has Jesus, God and man, who takes on sin and suffering when he took the cross. Because of this, God can assuage your agony. And God alone. He can do this because he took the cross. So the question is, is your suffering moving you towards God or away from God? Are you like Naomi who quickly concludes that God is a witness against you? Or are you like Job who comes up from suffering and goes right back down to worship God? Where are you today? You see, if you are a Christian, and you have to hear this, God is not against you. You are suffering right now, and if you are a Christian, God is not against you. That's what you feel. That's what some people may say to you, Job's friends, but it is not true. Because God is overwhelmingly for you because of Jesus. God is your advocate in Jesus. He's your redeemer who will resurrect you and renew you at the eschaton. And you need to see Jesus as your redeemer and resurrection in your sufferings. Two things kept Job going while he was suffering, and I pray they will keep you going as well. He hoped in God as his future redeemer, who would one day take on flesh and take his stand on earth. Today, we can say, we can look back to see that God was our redeemer, who took on flesh to die for us, and who will one day come back again to take his stand on the earth. So we have it better than Job. Because our faith partially has become sight. 
And Job trusted in God's future resurrection through Jesus. Jesus' suffering, his resurrection, and our future resurrection are essential for our theology of suffering because Jesus is the ultimate Job. 